Hello, and welcome to the Original Jurisdiction Podcast. I'm your host, David Lack, author of a Substack newsletter about law and the legal profession, also named Original Jurisdiction, which you can read and subscribe to by visiting davidlatt.substack.com. You're listening to the 23rd episode of this podcast, recorded on Friday, July 7th. I post episodes every other Wednesday. A big thanks to this podcast sponsor, NextFirm. NextFirm helps big law attorneys become founding partners. To learn more about how NextFirm can help you launch your firm, call 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com. Want to know who the guest will be for the next Original Jurisdiction podcast? Follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for a preview. My guest today is Kristen Wagoner, who is the CEO, President, and General Counsel of Alliance Defending Freedom, or ADF. ADF describes itself as a faith-based legal organization committed to protecting fundamental freedoms and promoting the inherent dignity of all people throughout the U.S. and around the world. As leader of ADF, Kristen oversees the efforts of more than 400 ADF team members in seven global offices, as well as 4,700 network attorneys engaged in litigation, legislation, training, funding, and public advocacy. ADF has won 15 cases in the U.S. Supreme Court, and of those 15 victories, 14 came while Kristen was overseeing ADF's U.S. legal operations. Kristen has personally argued and won three cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, including Masterpiece Cake Shop v. Colorado Civil Rights Commission and, just last month, 303 Creative v. Alanis. In our conversation, Kristen and I discussed how her religious faith inspired her to become a lawyer, her work as a lawyer and leader at ADF, which has generated significant controversy over the years, the extent to which it's appropriate to legislate morality or legislate one's religious views, where I think her opinions might surprise some of you, and, of course, her recent win in 303 Creative, including her commentary on the Stewart and Mike controversy and her responses to some of the arguments made in the dissent. Without further ado, here's my interview of Kristen Wagoner. Kristen, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Let's start at the beginning, as I do with all my guests. Tell us about your childhood, your upbringing. I believe you grew up in Washington State. I did, yes. I grew up in a small town there in Longview, Washington, which is kind of right in between Seattle and Portland. Basically was the second college graduate in my family. And my dad was a Christian school superintendent. So he was my principal, K through 12, (laughs) which provided a number of interesting experiences. And he came from the public school system which is an interesting story about my family dynamics, is my mom wanted me to enroll in a Christian school. And so she told my dad she would be going to work to pay for it because he was adamantly opposed to it. And then he spent like the next 40 years serving in Christian schools later. So (laughs) I'd say in terms of my upbringing, if you know anything about Washington State and particularly on the western side of the mountains, There are a lot of diverse views, maybe not as diverse as they used to be because they're fairly hard left in a number of respects. And certainly that was reflected in my extended family, which made for great discussions. Oh, that's interesting. And so it must have been interesting if you ever had to go to the principal's office. I think you've talked about that in past interviews. (laughs) Yeah, I would get sent there on a fairly regular basis, but I also got to go voluntarily too, right? I mean, (laughs) exactly, exactly. It's a unique experience. And in terms of how you came to the law, I understand your religious faith played an important role in your deciding to become a lawyer. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Sure. I grew up in a family. We would call it first generation Christians and that the rest of our family were not believers and wouldn't ascribe to the Christian faith. And so I say that because I think that it was interesting to me as I look back that my dad felt pretty strongly early on that I had a vocational call on my life and encouraged me to pursue that, encouraged me to ask God what that was and to seek his direction. Again, putting myself as a part of a bigger story, which I think is true for all of us, whether we have faith or we don't have faith, seeing ourselves as existing for a purpose and to promote human flourishing. And when I was 12 or 13 is when I felt like I was called to go into law and to protect religious freedom, as well as First Amendment rights and religious organizations. You recall that moment or that time period generally? What was it about law that beckoned to you as a vocation? I remember it like it was yesterday in the sense of I know exactly where I was sitting. I know the room I was in. It was so clear that I wrote it down. I still have it at home sitting in my bedroom and I review it. I mean, even as I've taken the role of CEO and president prior to accepting that role, I read it again to say, okay, how does this match up? What am I seeing in my life? And so in that way, it has had a massive impact in guiding my steps. And I'm very, very thankful for it. And so you went to law school. I believe you were at Regent for law school. And then tell us about your past and the profession between Regent and where you are today leading the Alliance Defending Freedom. I chose Regent because I knew that I wanted to defend religious freedom and religious organizations. I think that in part, as I look back, my dad's role probably had something to do with that because I was seeing conflict and I think government overreach in terms of how Christian schools at the big issue when in the 80s in that time frame was licensing and what the state Mm. could require in terms of curriculum and things like that. So I think that influenced it. So I chose Regent because they were the only conservative Christian law school that was accredited at the time. This is back in the early 90s. Frankly, I didn't even know any better with no lawyers in my family, no real college graduates other than my dad. But I am so thankful for that journey because I think it really helped me in my practice and the professors that I had. After graduating from Regent, I went to the Washington Supreme Court and clerked there, went back home, had a great experience there, and then joined a firm called Ellis Lee McKinstry, which is a boutique firm in downtown Seattle. I spent about 16 years practicing there, really grew up, became a partner, and then joined ADF about 10 years ago. So for listeners who are not familiar with Alliance Defending Freedom, can you talk about who ADF is and what you do as the CEO and general counsel and leader of the organization? Yes, I joined ADF in 2013, and I actually started on the team that served the Allied Network. So Hmm. having had experience in that, got to work in that. And that some of the very first cases that hit my desk were cases like Arlene's Flowers in Washington State, Jack Phillips and Masterpiece Cake Shop and others. I got to know the organization in a pretty, I would say, time where the conflict in these areas was escalating. and. Eventually, I started overseeing the U.S. legal team altogether and then became the CEO in October of last year. In terms of who we are, what attracted me to ADF was the comprehensive strategy that they have and the way that we don't just see litigation as the only tool. So we engage in litigation, legislative support, but also training. And as I mentioned, grants and funding. So training law students, training attorneys. It's a global organization. Many people don't know that. So we work around the world. And the areas that we focus in are sanctity of life, religious freedom, free speech, and parental rights. 
Okay. And I'm curious, when folks sometimes criticize the organization, I think often the first thing they go to is, oh, ADF is a hate group, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center. Would you like to address that criticism and perhaps inform us a little bit about what's going on there? (laughs) Sure. I would address it in two ways. The first is talking about who we are as an organization, because the Southern Poverty Law Center misstates that repeatedly. Thankfully, third parties aren't using the Southern Poverty Law Center very often anymore because they have lost so much credibility. So I'll end with that part of it. But in terms of who we are, you know, we represent people of all faiths and people of no faith when it comes to these issues, because we believe that religious freedom and free speech apply to everyone, even the people that we disagree with. We've had 15 Supreme Court victories in the last 12 years. Very few of those have had anything to do with sexual orientation or gender identity, even though most, I think, lawyers are probably familiar with the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. But you go back to Hobby Lobby, Conestoga Woods, certainly the Dobbs litigation we were on, Mississippi's legal team there. So they're fairly broad issues. In terms of who we are, in addition to the Supreme Court victories, we have about 100 attorneys that are in-house in addition to our attorney network. And about over 40% of those attorneys have clerkships. They come from big law. They come from, we have one who was a U.S. attorney. We have a couple of state solicitor generals, number of high-ranking officials in different agencies and state government. So I think our reputation speaks for itself. I also think SPLCs does as well. They (laughs) discredited by the left and the right, the New Yorker, Politico, Harper's, you know, they've had so many different scandals and they've said that their purpose now is to crush anyone who opposes their ideology. So they may have started with laudable purposes, but now they're just into trying to make money, including putting even parental rights groups on this list, which again, the list is basically nothing and very few people are using it anymore. So as you mentioned, ADF has won 15 Supreme Court cases. I believe you have argued and personally prevailed in three, correct? Is there a win, whether in the Supreme Court or not, you do a lot of work in lower courts too. Is there a win of which you are most proud? I don't know that there's one that I'm most proud. I mean, certainly I'm thrilled that we've had efforts that have gone over a decade in certain areas. 303 Creative is one, Dobbs is another. But when I think about the work that I find most fulfilling and that I am most proud of, it probably wouldn't be the things that you would think. In private practice, I will always treasure a couple of custody trials and appeals where it made a difference to that family. And the Stormins case, as I mentioned earlier, and Arlene's Flowers, just incredible moments, incredible journeys to be able to help people that as lawyers, I think sometimes we are always looking for that written decision that's, you know, the standard, the goal that you're going for that written decision. But oftentimes we can help our clients in other ways and even be creative about that to ensure that their rights aren't violated and to help them through the worst of times. And those are the moments that I'm most proud of. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, very well put. So since 303 Creative came down last month, there has been a ton of discussion based on this New Republic article alleging, in essence, I'm summarizing roughly, that ADF might have made up one piece of evidence in the litigation. Your client, Lori Smith, who's a Christian website designer, was supposedly asked to create a website, a wedding website for a same-sex couple named Stuart and Mike. And the New Republic tracked down the gentleman uh, based on his contact information, who is supposedly Stuart, 
And it turns out he's straight and he's married to a woman. And so some people are suggesting that either A, ADF manufactured this evidence in bad faith, or B, somehow this creates some sort of standing issue in the case. Can you address this Stuart and Mike controversy? I would love to. I think, you know, of, of the different cases that we've been involved in, many of which are controversial over the years of ADF, I have never seen a response quite like this in terms of the disingenuous nature of what some people are saying and the blatant misrepresentations. If you want to attack the substance of the decision, there's grounds to do that. I mean, I think it's the right decision, but certainly there are arguments that can be made. But to manufacture facts and with zero evidence call for the attorneys to be disbarred or face criminal penalties is, I think, pretty reprehensible and reaches a new low bar. So let me just briefly address it first from the law and then from the factual standpoint, because I think both are independent of each other, but also very important. As you know, David, pre-enforcement challenges are a staple of the civil rights litigation. We can look at Doe versus Bolton, Holder versus Humanitarian, and there are many, many precedents that those in the progressive left love to champion, and they're pre-enforcement challenges. The whole point of a pre-enforcement challenge is that you don't have to choose between chilling your speech and facing sanctions. You don't have to violate the law in order to have your case litigated. So Lori didn't need a request in order to have standing, which makes absolutely no sense as to why we would make one up, particularly the day after the litigation was filed, in that standing is measured on day one, not day two. And we have to have standing on day one. I would also say that of the 12 appellate judges that considered it, not one relied on the request, nor even mentioned it. And in addition to that, I think it's important that we mention the fact that in terms of whether the request was actually genuine, whether someone really did want the wedding website for a real wedding, or it was a fake request, is also irrelevant to standing. And on that note, one thing that I think is particularly disingenuous by the Colorado Attorney General is the suggestion that we should have verified it. When that same office took the position against Jack Phillips. He answered the phone the day the Supreme Court agreed to hear Masterpiece Cake Shop, and it was a trolling request. It was a request for a cake. He declined it, and Colorado then prosecuted him for it. So Lori doesn't have to put herself in legal jeopardy to determine, is this guy really wanting an actual wedding website, or is he just wanting it to try to set me up? That's just not a fair legal inquiry. The second thing on the facts, and I'll be much briefer here, is it's undisputed that the request came in. ID data confirms that it came in. There's zero evidence to suggest that it didn't come in, other than Stewart saying seven years ago that he didn't do it. And lastly, I got to say this. Interestingly enough, when you trace back that IP address, it traces back to only a few areas, and San Francisco is one of those areas, to which Stewart concedes to the New Republic that he was living in San Francisco at the time he made the request. And he said, after the decision came out, that he was opposed to Lori's free speech rights and he found the decision disgraceful. If we were going to pick a fake request, wouldn't we have gone with a secret ally rather than an ideological opponent? It just makes no sense. Huh. Very interesting. I'm also curious, one of the issues for standing in terms of this pre-enforcement context is whether Lori has a reasonable fear that she's going to be pursued legally for this. I would think that Colorado stipulating to various facts in the district court and then taking her case all the way up to the Supreme Court and never saying or never disclaiming any intent to go after her. I mean, doesn't that already create a reasonable basis? 
Yes, because the court has said again and again that credible threat is sort of the crux of the inquiry, right? Does she face a credible threat? The court has said that if the state doesn't disavow enforcement, and this is in many other cases, not just ours, if the government doesn't disavow enforcement, then the court's going to assume that enforcement will take place. And there's no assumption necessary here because for seven years, Colorado said she would break the law if she declined to create a message that celebrated same-sex weddings. I think it's also interesting, I don't know if you saw Phil Weiser's recent statement post-decision, he sort of tried to join the chorus of voices and essentially said, this is a made-up case and Lori's never designed any websites. Again, blatantly contradicts not only the true facts, but the stipulated facts that she, since 2012, she has been incorporated and has regularly provided websites to the public. So you're spot on to, I think, look at the stipulations. I would just point out that the stipulations are also true. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm also curious. I understand that ADF has several active cases like Lori Smith's, like 303 Creative. Can you discuss them briefly and what's going to happen with those cases going forward? Well, I mean, as you know, in our practice, you never know for sure what's going to happen. <laughs> but I think what we expect is a number of cases have been stayed pending the 303 grade decision. And so we'll be filing supplemental briefing. It will go back and forth. Kind of some examples of those cases include Chelsea Nelson, for example, who's a photographer in Kentucky. Her case is at the Sixth Circuit. We have Emily Carpenter. She's also a photographer out of New York. New York imposes up to six figures in fines. If she breaks the law, it also includes jail time. And the imposition of jail time isn't as unusual as you might expect. We've had other cases involving potential jail time, too. So that case will move forward. We have Bob Updergrove in Virginia, where there are also similar penalties that can be imposed against Bob Updergrove, who's the photographer. So I think you'll see significant supplemental briefing that will try to apply to your creative to this context. This podcast is being sponsored by NextFirm. If you have wondered whether launching a law firm could be the next best step for your career, NextFirm has the experience and expertise to help. Contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com today to learn more. And follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for updates on future original jurisdiction guests. So in terms of the limiting principles in 303 Creative, you have represented florists, you have represented photographers, you've represented bakers, and of course, now you've represented a website designer, which clearly seems like speech. What would even you admit is not speech, is not protected by the First Amendment, such that a public accommodation must accommodate people of all faiths, sexual orientations, genders, races, etc.? I would say it's easier to focus on what is speech in some sense, because most of the services that public accommodations are providing have absolutely no speech in them in terms of it's about creating custom speech. It's not whether you have to speak when you're serving someone. It is, are you being asked to create a message that you object to? And even on the cake side of things, for example, I'm guessing that some of your listeners might think I would want to protect every cake. And that's just not true. When you go into a grocery store, there are many cakes in there. There's no speech involved in that. But I do think that when you write a word on it, that becomes speech. We know that words are speech. And obviously, our belief is that inherently with Jack Phillips in particular, a wedding cake that the kind that he designs, which are custom, have an inherent expressive message to them. But the vast majority of cakes would not. So mm -hmm. I, I think, again, it's looking at, is there actually a message that's being communicated through this particular 
product. And certainly having skill, having artistry, that doesn't necessarily get you there to say that it's communicative. And I think there are some misconceptions among the public. I think people don't realize that Laurie Smith would serve LGBTQ individuals, just not with respect to saying a pro-same-sex marriage. She would design websites for their accounting practice or what have you. But let me go to an argument raised by Justice Sotomayor in her dissent. It seems that the same logic about not endorsing a message you oppose would apply to other forms of speech that I think we would find more reprehensible than opposition to same-sex marriage. For example, what if Lori Smith refused to produce a wedding website for an interracial couple? So would you concede that that too would be protected as reprehensible as it might be? I don't think that whether the First Amendment protects speech depends on whether it's reprehensible. Although I would agree that is reprehensible speech and it's awful. But we have protected the most vile, reprehensible, awful speech. But here is what I think the crux of the decision says very clearly, which is that public accommodation laws continue to apply just as they always have. You cannot decline service to a class of people. And in the public accommodations context, though, you also still have the right to free speech. You can't be forced to say something you don't believe. Those two concepts have coexisted for many, many years. It's only recently that they've been misused to censor silence and punish those who have a different view on human sexuality. In terms of I would say the issue of the interracial marriage context, the test that the court used both in this decision and that we've been advocating for, it's the same test, which is whether your speech is affected. And in the public accommodation context, whether you are otherwise serving those in the protected class and creating other messages for them. If you're not, then that suggests that's protectual discrimination. Also, if the speech that you are asked to create isn't reflected in the final product, that also is protectional. And that test goes all the way back even to Hurley. We see the court applying that test there. And I would just add that you mentioned that Lori's willing to serve those who identify as LGBT. Lori does serve those who identify as LGBT. She has clients who identify as LGBT and she loves serving them and she's in relationship with them. This is about a particular message. And that is the touch point of, I think, the First Amendment inquiry in the public accommodation context. So to apply that test, though, from the court, if she's designing wedding websites for straight couples that are sort of within that realm, then I think she would have to design a wedding website for an interracial couple as well, because she is designing for the public other wedding websites involving heterosexual unions. I think that, again, we can come up with creative law school hypotheticals, but in the real world, the protectional discrimination test is going to smoke out any types of discrimination that are against an entire class of people. But the second thing I would say is in Lori's case, every website she creates is original and custom. So it's not like you're getting pre-made websites or sort of plug and play where you can just swap in names or, you know, something like that. And so every website is unique and creates a new celebratory message about that union. And I think that's one of the things that is also a touch point of the inquiry is if this were just a plug and play type situation where you're selling speech to someone else and they can just put their names in, whether it's an interracial situation or any other, you have to sell that. And I would also say that it'll be interesting to see what the court does next in terms of whether it applies strict scrutiny or some sort of per se standard in these cases. But if it was strict scrutiny that they would apply in the racial context I think you could make a pretty good case that's a very different, compelling interest based on our unique history. And we see that in precedent like Pena Rodriguez. 
But again, we have protected some of the worst, most vile racist speech in the past and never compelled it. So another thing I'm curious about regarding what constitutes Lori Smith's speech, she is a designer and you can hire her and she will provide her services. Is she then charged with agreeing with every statement that appears on every website for every client? What if she's retained by rival restaurants or what if she's retained by rival candidates for city council? No one would say that she's endorsing both restaurants or both candidates or what have you, right? Like, isn't she just a designer for hire? Why is this her speech? It's the client's speech. She's merely facilitating it. The court addressed that, and I think correctly in the decision, and that when you are creating speech with your heart, your head, your hand, that's your speech. And to be compelled to betray your convictions, to express a message that you would have to affirm and then deny in the next breath, is an intrusion of the mind and the spirit and undermines the very purpose of the First Amendment and the free speech clause, at least one of those purposes, which goes to who we are in our individual dignity. A second purpose we could talk about later is how we have social progress through free speech and self-government and what happens when you give the government the right to tell you what you must say. That's a whole nother harm. But I think in the context that we're talking about, we also need to remember, think of the example of a ghostwriter. If a ghostwriter writes a book, and the name is not on that book. Is that an intrusion of the mind and the spirit to have to write an entire book? Absolutely. We would all agree that. Endorsement has never been the test to decide whether the free speech clause applies. And that's why the court rightly said it's Lori's speech. And yes, the client might contribute to that and it might become the client's speech as well. But at a minimum, it is her speech and you can't compel it. Now, I just want to add though, one of the things that you have to look at under the free speech clause is Who is speaking and are they trying to exercise editorial control? Context matters. And Justice Gorsuch's decision says context matters. So you might have a completely different answer for, you know, well, first of all, social media companies. We don't know how that will come out. And it might come out differently depending on the activity they're engaged in at the time. Are they exercising editorial judgment? What about a Kinko's or a FedEx copier? Those are all different situations. And But in Lori's case, it's stipulated and it's true that she does exercise editorial discretion and doesn't want to create messages that violate her convictions. So one thing I've been personally troubled about or confused about is, I wonder whether some of the difficulty of this case stems from applying public accommodation law too broadly. Justice Sotomayor in her dissent acknowledges that you could have a business that doesn't hold itself out to the public. And presumably, Lori might decline to work for clients for any number of reasons. They have a clashing aesthetic vision, their budget isn't right, what have you. So she's exercising discretion in terms of clients. It's not like Amazon where anyone can just click and order. So is the problem here really that public accommodation law is being applied to an artist or a creative person who has discretion anyway in terms of who her clients are? I think that is a big part of the problem. And it's absolutely right what you're saying. The government can't misuse the law to violate Americans' freedoms that are protected under the First Amendment. And the majority decision rightly says that when a state public accommodations law comes into conflict with the Constitution, when the two collide, there's no question which one must prevail. So it's also, I think, most Americans don't realize the breadth of these laws now. They're almost unrecognizable from when they began early in our nation's history. Some jurisdictions have up to 20 classifications, protected classifications. Others have a number of political belief or political ideology classifications. And even more, including Colorado's, apply to anyone who sells anything. So the soccer mom on Etsy 
is all of a sudden a public accommodation. So they really are unrecognizable from their original purposes. And I do think that's part of the problem. It's interesting. And the dissent goes into great detail about the history of these laws, but they are very different from the laws that I think your opponents do like to rest upon. Zooming out to sort of a bigger picture or higher altitude level, I'm curious. So you're a very prominent figure in the conservative legal movement. There are people on the left who are very upset over cases like Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, which ADF was involved in, which overruled Roe v. Wade, or cases like 303 Creative. So when you're meeting with your fellow leaders in the conservative legal movement, what's your next goal? Are you trying to get Obergefell v. Hodges overturned? Are you trying to get fetal personhood recognized in the 14th Amendment? Where do you guys go next? Well, we work in a number of different areas and more than anything else right now, all of those areas are facing attacks on free speech. And so a significant portion of our work, whether it involves the attorney team that focuses on life, whether it's parental rights, whether it's religious freedom or free speech, or it's our church and ministry alliance, all of those teams are doing a substantial portion of work on just trying to ensure that people can continue to think and speak freely. And that is what most of our work is focused on right now. And I think that we'll continue. We have to define and protect the 303 Creative Victory. And we have to understand that it doesn't just protect those who are conservative or religious, but it protects the LGBT website designer from having to create a website that criticizes same-sex marriage. It protects the Democratic speechwriter who doesn't want to write for Donald Trump. The Muslim graphic artist who, you know, doesn't want to create a message that violates his convictions. The First Amendment's a golden rule, and we need to treat it as such because if we want freedom for ourselves, we have to protect it for those we disagree with. So that's a significant portion of our work. But do we intend to continue to protect life? You bet. Do we continue to make sure that parents are able to raise their children consistent with their values? You bet. But a lot of that right now has to do with government officials trying to silence, punish, and ruin people for their speech. And by the way, I, I think even though you and I have some various policy disagreements, I think you are on your most solid ground when you're defending speech. Does ADF have any cases right now that are seeking to challenge Obergefell or the definition of marriage? Not about protecting people's right to have their own definition of marriage, but ones that are trying to get Obergefell overturned? We don't have any cases that are seeking to have Obergefell overturned. I want to be clear, I think Obergefell is wrongly decided, and we continue to think it's wrongly decided. But that's not something that we are pursuing. Again, we're having a debate right now, I think, as a nation, not only about what marriage is, but what it means to be a man or a woman. And that extends in a broad context. And many of us want to be involved in that debate because we think it's critical to our nation's future and our families. And it's interesting to see, especially on the nature of what it means to be a man or a woman, how the left and right are even in some quarters lining up right now to join forces on this. We are focusing on our efforts on making sure that the progressively left government and even the fringe of the right, we don't want to see them weigh in on one side of that debate in a way that violates the Constitution. As Americans, we are right to have that debate and we are right to pursue what we believe to be true. And that is for us, that men and women are different and that when the law fails to recognize legitimate distinctions between men and women, families get hurt, individuals get hurt, and our nation will be weaker for it. So that's very interesting. On one level, I see a sort of 
content agnosticism in some of your work in terms of your protecting the rights of Christians to speak and Muslims to speak. But on a non-legal basis, more, I guess, on a policy or I'm a voter in the voting booth basis, what is your big picture take on the relationship between religion and politics? For example, if I am deeply Christian and I believe what Jesus said about divorce being wrong, should divorce be illegal? Should I vote in favor of criminalizing or civilly banning divorce? I don't think that it's fair to say as a Christian, every position that you believe scripture takes is something that should be legislated. And that's not even consistent with the Christian faith itself, which is that when you come to know Christ and you follow him as a disciple, that is a voluntary decision that you're making. It's not a coercive decision. And so there are certain decisions that we would say shouldn't be met out in policy. And certainly, you know, the legitimate Christian nationalism is something that we don't want a part of. We want to call balls and strikes. And those balls and strikes are on both Republicans and on Democrats, because we believe we're in a battle for truth. And that the truth of what we believe promotes human flourishing. And we're not afraid of entering the marketplace to debate that truth, because we believe that it does promote human flourishing and we're on the right side. So that's very interesting and very helpful, because I think Some of your opponents like to caricature you as basically wanting to turn America into an entirely Christian nation, legislating Christian morality and mores on every issue under the sun. And it sounds like you acknowledge that there are some issues where we don't need legislation and we don't need to enshrine any particular viewpoint. I would say there are areas where legislation is not the answer and creating a Christian theocracy is not helpful. It's Mm -hmm. not a goal that we have. What does concern me in this moment is that the coercive efforts that we have seen, particularly by progressively left government officials in these areas where they are regulating and compelling speech, is also causing a fringe on the right to try to use those same methods, which lack principle, lack historical precedent in terms of resulting in a good outcome. And that is what concerns me. So I don't know what else to say on that other than we believe that freedom for ourselves means extending it to those that we disagree with and that religious freedom and free speech and parental rights are inalienable. They are to all of us. So turning to free speech controversies, you have been a controversial speaker at some law schools. You went to my alma mater twice, and the second time I think was fine, but the first time erupted in a very ugly protest that I've written about extensively. But one argument we hear in opposing invitations to folks like you is that you're speaking, quote unquote, harms certain vulnerable communities, for example, transgender students, given some of your and ADF's stances on various transgender rights issues. How would you respond to the argument that you're going to a law school to speak is harmful to certain groups of students? I would say, first of all, that I believe an appeal to harm is an appeal to power. It is a mechanism that some are trying to use to censor those and to shut down debate. And that's a very dangerous proposition. Certainly, some of my views, which I don't think should be controversial, but are, but at Yale, for example, the what seemed to have the student mob up in arms was that I believe that men shouldn't compete in women's sports. That's what most of the yelling and the signs and the intimidation was about, was my position on women and girls being able to have fair play. And 
especially in law schools that are supposed to be teaching logic and legal principles and zealous advocacy to suggest that hearing a viewpoint that you disagree with causes you harm and thus should be shut down is basically going to obliterate our justice system. And I think also is going to so undermine our ability to engage in self-government and even pursue and expose dangerous ideas, it boggles my mind that someone would advocate for that. If you want to debate me and say why I'm wrong, good on you for doing that. And let the listener hear. But by silencing speech, all you're doing is allowing essentially the government to decide what's appropriate and what's not, what speech they want, and you're limiting your own ability to hear ideas and then to counter those ideas. Based on your experience going back to Yale the second time, which I believe went smoothly, and instead of being protested disruptively, there was a counter event where somebody could articulate different views from yours. Based on your speaking at Yale and, and other law schools, I know you get many invitations. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of free speech in American legal education? I think it's difficult to say. I think that, you know, what happens next over the next few years will be very telling. You are right that when I returned to Yale, the administration did its best to ensure that it was a peaceful event and that we were able to engage. And in both of those events, the first and the second, it's important to point out there was a counter speaker. You know, we didn't align with ideologically on many issues. And yet, yet the student mob portion refused to hear. A second thing is I didn't point this out in your last question, but I do think it's important. The conservative and religious students have every right to invite speakers on their campuses as well. And the law schools need to start recognizing that. And it causes them harm under the definition of harm that these students want to impose. It causes the conservative and religious students harm too, to hear the counter speech. I'm interested to see what Yale actually does. There's a whole lot of people, you know, Stanford's memo and others saying things but I think we will really know in the next few years in the hires, in the types of speech that they protect and allowing these student groups that are conservative and religious to bring people onto campus that might disagree with the progressive left ideology. That's a very important point you make about the wide range of speakers at the events that you participate in. Monica Miller of the American Humanist Association, they support habeas rights for elephants or something. She was your first discussant or opponent. And then Nadine Strassen, a former podcast guest of mine, who's quite, you know, liberal, a former longtime president of the ACLU. She and Robert Post, the former dean, were your fellow panelists for the second event. So I would just underscore that point that you made. So turning to my final questions, my little speed round, these four questions are standardized for all guests. My first question is, what do you like the least about the law? And this can either be the in the trenches practice of law, or it can be law as this abstract system of rights and responsibilities? Billing. (laughs) (laughs) Do you still, I guess, under some fee-shifting statutes, you have to keep track of your hours, even at ADF? You do, but I mean, the question is fairly broad. And so the billing side of things for me, it has been more freeing to be at ADF and get to spend the time that I need to spend to do what I need to do. And so I think in terms of what I always hated was billing. I know, I would guess a number of people probably say something like discovery or something like that, but I actually like that because I'm a detailed girl and I love to <laughs> secrets that no one thinks I can get to. <laughs> no, fair enough, fair enough. My second question is, what would you be if you were not a lawyer? I wish I could be a doctor, but I don't think that's attainable. I hate science and math. So I think a more realistic possibility as a professor. I'd love to engage with students. 
Mm-hmm. And that makes sense as reflected in your speaking at law schools. And I guess it's also a family tradition because your father's an educator. My third question is, how much sleep do you get each night? Eight hours. Good for you. <laughs> yes, I don't do well without it. Our founder, and he took this quote from another person, but you know, the idea that fatigue makes cowards of us all, that's really a principle I try to live by. I notice that my decisions slow down and they're not as clear when I haven't had good rest. I like that saying. I've never heard it before. And lastly, any final words of wisdom, whether career advice or life advice for my listeners? Yes. As I thought about this, the first thing that came to mind is the mantra that the days are long, but the years are short. As a mom and a wife and someone who's been practicing for many, many years now, I haven't enjoyed those critical moments. I've moved to the next thing. I don't think I fully appreciated them, whether that be in my kids' lives in my marriage, in my own career. And I've allowed other things to steal the joy or to just move on. And I think 302 Creative is a great example. I had an attorney come to me today to say, don't let them steal your joy. As you're defending this absolutely wrong and reprehensible allegation, you know, that's misrepresenting the case, don't let them steal your joy. And the second thing I would say is in that process, and what I've learned here at ADF is that the mission is so much bigger than the calling. There's always more work to do. And if we don't realize that for me as a Christian, my first obligation is to, it's to love God and love my neighbor. And I don't do that well when I get so caught up in the cause. I wanna be caught up in people and I wanna be kind and charitable and I want to have relationship. And so that I think is something that we all have a need for. And as lawyers, we probably tend to put the bottom of our list rather than the top. I think those are good words to uh, live by, very wise words. So, Kristen, uh, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your insights with me and my audience. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much to Kristen Wagoner for joining me. Thanks to Nextrum for sponsoring this episode of the Original Jurisdiction podcast. Nextrum has helped many attorneys to leave big law and launch firms of their own. If you would like to explore this opportunity, contact Nextfirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com to learn more. Thanks to Tommy Heron, my sound engineer here at Original Jurisdiction. And thanks to you, my listeners and readers, for tuning in. If you'd like to connect with me, you can email me at davidlatt at substack.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at David Latt and on Instagram at David Benjamin Latt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Please subscribe to the Original Jurisdiction newsletter if you don't already over at davidlatt.substack.com. This podcast is free, as is most of the newsletter content, but it is made possible by paid subscriptions to the newsletter. The next episode of the podcast should appear two weeks from now, on or about Wednesday, July 26th. Until then, may your thinking be original and your jurisdiction free of defects.